So neglect is a terrible, terrible thing. And we all know that there's like a wide range of effects that come from neglect. My basil plants in my backyard give testimony to what neglect will do. You just leave them alone for a couple of days and don't water them and all the leaves turn black and fall off and oh, it, it, they're, they turn ugly. A neglected house. How many of you have seen like a neglected house, maybe on Fixer Upper or one of those programs? Uh, they become infested with rodents and termites and insect and dust and decay and pipes burst and fall apart, mold takes over, and the house becomes uninhabitable. A garden that is neglected becomes ugly and unenjoyable. A relationship that is neglected, a, a friendship, will become cold and unfulfilling and there will be so many misunderstandings and the wedge between the friends will grow and grow. Neglect of the body. Little aches become chronic aches. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Skin cancers grow and what happens is they appear above and they grow below. Uh, your skin, if you neglect your skin, it becomes dry and drawn and even flaky. You neglect your body with food and the body goes into starvation mode and you know, the cheeks pull inward and everything begins to shrivel. When you neglect um, walking or exercise, you neglect your body, your muscles begin to atrophy. Uh, I know that there's so many things that I could do in my youth that I just can't do anymore. And obviously I have neglected those muscles. A child that's neglected will have disassociative depression despondency, and even brain damage just from neglect. But what's at the heart of neglect? Why do we neglect? Well, we get other priorities, things that are simply more important. Um, when I get into a sewing project and I get these inspirations for sewing projects, I neglect my body and I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh my goodness, how long is it since I've washed my hair? How long is it since I've you know, put moisturizers on or done anything or even eaten? I just get so into that project because that just takes the forefront of everything I'm doing. Sometimes we neglect because there's just things that we'd rather do, like sleep, like watch television, than give earnest heed. Things like comfort and pleasure, making money, activities take precedence over over whatever the thing that we're neglecting is. Sometimes it's a lack of passion. The person or thing that is suffering the neglect is simply not in my consideration. It's, I just don't care about it anymore. I, I've just lost the heart for it. The, you know, what they say is out of sight, out of mind. I have no desire or effort to put an investment of my time or my energy into it. Sometimes it's busyness. I'm so busy doing other things that the neglect is really unnoticed. I, I don't mean to neglect. You ever have that? You're just so busy. You didn't mean to neglect that person or that thing. It, it's just you're so busy. 
Years ago, I remember just being a young mom. Um, I had had Kelsey, my third child, and I was so, so tired. And she would wake up three to four times during the night. And I had just gotten to this point of exhaustion. And she was three months old, and I thought it was about five o'clock in the evening. I needed to do dinner and all sorts of other things, but I thought if I could just get a 15-minute nap, I know I would feel so much better. So I put her in the electric swing. You know, when I would, when I first had my first children, you had to crank them. You would crank them, and you know, if they were asleep and you start cranking, it would wake them up. I don't know how many of you remember those crank, those cranky swings that made cranky babies. But I, with this child, I had the battery-operated one. Oh, my goodness, they were wonderful. So I put Kelsey in the battery-operated swing. I laid down, and the next thing I knew, the sun was rising. I had slept all the way till 6.30 in the morning. Nobody had come in. Nobody had interrupted it. And nobody had pulled Kelsey out of the swing. And I look over, and there she is, still going back and forth in the swing. And her little feet are, like bluish, almost purple. I'm like, oh my goodness. I didn't neglect her on purpose. I would never, ever neglect my baby. But I was so wrung out, so tired that I accidentally neglected my baby. It, sometimes we've got so many other um, what seem important things pressing in on us that we just don't have time for the upkeep Neglect is so pervasive, and we all know what it's like to neglect something or find something we've neglected. Brian goes surfing, and he does the baptisms, and I don't know why, because he's been told differently. Do not leave the wet towels in the garage. Maybe you have husbands like this, that you have given similar instructions. Do not leave the wet towels in the garage. But he does. And we'll be all out of beach towels, and I have to go on this hunt in the garage, and some of them, what has happened to them is just ugly. You know, they'll, they'll have mold spots on them or holes in them, just like where they're worn through from the neglect. And well, it finally came to a head. I was pulling some things out of the washing machine, and then I was folding the whites, you know, the whites that you do separate from everything else. And as I was folding one of his white t-shirts, I thought, what are all these little black polka dots on it? What are all these spots? And I realized this t-shirt might be clean, but it is totally ruined because somehow it went on the wet beach towel pile in the garage. And right there, I was thinking, this is the price you pay for neglect. But we've all had things like this, maybe a house plant, um, maybe a friendship, as I said earlier. Um, maybe, maybe it's something that you haven't used in years, like a bread maker, and you get out and you're like, wow, this thing's got a lot of, uh, a lot of dust on it or problems with it. We've either been the recipients of neglect or we've been the neglector. Neither is pleasant. The author of Hebrews speaks of the danger of neglecting so great a salvation. And he said one of the first issues is that we drift away. We lose sight of how great our salvation is. We just forget because it's not on our radar. 
We're not thinking about it. And so we forget what a great saving we have received, how great the sacrifice for our salvation was, how great the Savior is who procured that salvation to us, and the great success that our Savior realized or procured for us on the cross. When we neglect so great a salvation, we fail to give the most earnest heed. We do not give it priority, preeminence, or passion. And the consequences are much worse than the t-shirt that Brian left in the garage, and even much worse, as the author of Hebrews says, than what the Israelites suffered who neglected God's law. It will result as a Christian in defeat, oppression, exile, loss, a sense of separation from God. How can we as believers avoid the pervasive danger of neglect? How do we keep from neglecting our great salvation? Well, the author says to us, we must give heed. Heed, we must give attention. We must give allegiance to our salvation. So how do we take heed to it? We must consider it. We must keep an awareness of it, keep it in our sights. You see, you drift away. All of us have had that experience of going out in the ocean, not realizing that the tide is so strong and losing you know, our beach party, the people that we are with, uh, losing sight of our towel, our possessions. I don't know about you, but I always panic. I come out of the ocean. I'm like, somebody stole my beach towel and somebody changed the number on the lifeguard tower. These people are so cruel not realizing that the problem's with me. I have drifted. But if I can keep it in my sights, put a marker on the beach and say, okay, I'm at Lifeguard Tower 17. I do not want to forget this. Lifeguard 17. And I make Lifeguard 17 my marker. So I know whether I'm drifting or not. That's how you give heed. And you keep checking yourself. Every wave that you dive under or jump over or float in on, or whatever you do, ride, you keep going back and saying, where am I in relationship to lifeguard number 17? So when we give heed, we say, where am I in relationship to the lifeguard salvation that I've received? That salvation that has saved me, that salvation that has brought me out of the depth of danger, where am I in relationship to that? But also part of it is to realize, to reckon with its greatness, its grace, and its glory. The author doesn't say, we have received salvation. He says, we have received so great a salvation. Not just a salvation, not just a great salvation, but so great a salvation because it's, it's more than great. It's more than amazing. It's more than undeserved. It, it's a great, but it's so great. Now, Hebrews chapter two supplies us with four reasons our salvation is so great. Firstly, again, remember, it's so great. This Greek word is telekutos, and it, it has to do with 
um, like an all-encompassing greatness. It's not just great in one area. It, it speaks of this complex greatness. So it's great in stature. It's great in bulk. It's great in size. It's great in benefit. It's great in age. It is just great in every arena that great can be good. That's how great our salvation is. Our salvation surpasses any lesser deliverance. It is the great salvation. It is the deliverance that matters most. Now, we've all had little salvations. I remember one time stepping too close to the edge of the Grand Canyon and my feet giving way and all of a sudden feeling this hand just grab me and pulling me back. And it was my father. Another time, it was interesting, I was at this retreat, and they were asking how many people choked, and their parent or a guardian or someone older came and lifted their left hand up. And first of all, she asked, how many have choked before? And I raised my hand. She said, how many, you know, your guardian or parent lifted your left hand? And I was like, no, that didn't happen to me. So I was waiting to raise my hand again. And I remember my brother was dropping junior mints into my mouth in the back seat of the car. I was four years old, I still remember. And he dropped one after another, and one stuck in my throat, and I started choking. My dad pulled over the car, and nobody told him about just lifting the left hand. No, he grabbed me by the ankles and shook me up and down till that little junior mint popped out. But that was a salvation. Definitely. I would have died had my father not pulled over the car and acted so quickly and so decisively to remove that junior mint. So we've all experienced little salvations, but this is the most important. This is the great salvation. This is the one that counts, and and this is the greatest of salvations. This is eternal salvation, and it is great because of what we have been delivered from. Secondly, because of the great cost. Thirdly, because of the way it was accomplished. Fourthly, because our Savior is so great. And fifthly, because of the greatness of what is ours because of this salvation. As believers, we need to continually realize how great our salvation is, contemplating it, appreciating it, realigning ourselves with it, giving them more earnest heed or investing our attention and our time into this salvation. Now, the devil wants to numb us to so great a salvation so that we will drift away, so we will lose sight of it, so other things will become more important, and we will drift um, putting distance between ourselves and the greatness. You know, when something gets to be a distance, you no longer recognize how, how big it is. There are, um, right out here at the El Toro base, there are the... Uh, what used to be the blimp holders during World War II. And from a distance, they don't look that great. They look, you know, from the sky, they don't look that big. But oh my goodness, if you go to the district mall, uh, shopping center and you walk anywhere near them, you are going to say, wow, these things are huge. They're so big. So the closer we get to our salvation, we're going to look at it and go, this is huge. This is so big. And, and maybe when you first got saved, you're like, this is huge. 
But the longer you walk with the Lord and things come in and you begin to bring things back into your life and you begin to neglect it and you put that distance, it loses in your heart and mind the greatness. But it is so great. I think about, and maybe you do too, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. I think about how she had her eyes on Oz. And she was, of course, with the Tin Man and the Scarecrow. This, of course, is a true story. Not. But she's with the Scarecrow and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion. And they see Oz in the different, a distance. And the Wicked Witch so desperately doesn't want her to reach Oz. Because she knows if Dorothy reaches Oz, she'll have the answer. She'll have the strength. And forever she will keep those ruby red slippers. So what does the Wicked Witch of the West do? She sends out those demonic monkeys with wings and they sow the sleeping powder in the fields. Remember that part? If not, watch it as a spiritual allegory. Anyway, they they sow the sleeping powder in the fields. Okay, just real quick. How many of you remember when you could only watch it once a year? Dorothy the Wizard of Oz, it would come out once a year and it was like, I'm sorry, Everything else doesn't matter. Dorothy is going to be on television. And we'd all sit there and just, you know, the whole family would gather around to watch Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. But they sow this sleeping powder in the field because they know as long as they're awake and they're alert and their eyes are on us, they're going to be successful and they're going to be out of the wicked witch of the West's grasp. So they sow the sleeping powder. And now as they're going towards the field, they're getting more and more tired. And they just want to rest. So first they're just kind of, you know, going slower. And then they're kind of standing. And then they're taking one step. And then they're beginning just to lay down. And they all say at a different point, if I just can just get a little sleep. Next thing you know, they're asleep in the field. And what happens? Maybe you remember. They come down those those evil, wicked, winged monkeys, and they they pick them off one by one, and they take them to the witch's lair, and they imprison them. And I think about, this is what the devil's plan is. He wants to take us away from such a great salvation. You see, our salvation is great because it has saved us from the prison house and the power of the devil. Verse 14 of chapter two says that through death, he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. That's what our salvation has done. It has delivered us from the power of the devil. The devil has no claim and no power against us. Now, let's think about the devil for a moment and just for a moment, because I don't want to give him too much time. But Proverbs 12, 10 says the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. The devil does not have a mercy button on his whole entire staff. There is no mercy. As tender as he can get, as merciful as he can get, it's still cruel. He is the ultimate narcissist. We're told in Isaiah that he said, I will make myself like the most high God. He wants worship. And and no amount of worship is enough for the devil. He said to the Lord, Jesus in the temptation, bow down and worship me. And the literal rendering of that in Greek is bow down just once and worship me. Just one time. He's so desperate that even though he has the worship, 
of so many people of this world, it's still not enough. The Bible, Jesus actually tells us in John 8, 44, that he is a liar and a murderer. In Luke 13, 16, he tells us that he's a cruel taskmaster. He had bound a woman in pain and bent over for over 18 years. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, that he's a devouring lion. He's going around just looking for somebody that he can devour. And in John 10, 10, Jesus tells us that he's a thief and a robber and a destroyer. But we are saved from the devil. He is no longer the master of our life. But we are also saved from death. This is all what we're saved from. We are saved from death. Now, Men describe death as separation of the spirit from the body. But the Bible describes death as separation of the spirit from God. When Adam and Eve sinned and ate of the forbidden tree, immediately their spirits were separated from God's spirits. There was no more walking in the garden. There was no more fellowship. But the death that the Bible is speaking about, besides a physical death, is an eternal separation from God. Everything that is God, love, peace, joy, beauty, kindness, truth, all the attributes of God, light, innocence, purity, all of these are lost forever. When you take God, who is love, out of the picture, you lose love. We are saved from hell. We are saved from that place of eternal separation from God. We are saved from damnation. We are saved from the condemnation that was justly ours because of our sin. We were rebels from God and we had received the death penalty. And we deserve to be punished and destroyed for our opposition to God. But we have been saved from that condemnation, as it says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been saved from the fear of death, verse 15, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We are no longer hiding from life, trying to escape death. In fact, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, death has been transformed into a transport. A transport, a a bus, if you will, a train, an airplane to glory, perfection, beauty, community, God's presence, and life itself. Fear has been reduced to a nagging choice and not a constant. We are also saved from aimless, vain, purposeless, and meaningless lives on earth. You see, we were subject to bondage. We were addicted to sin. We were cursed and condemned to this insufferable emptiness where nothing that we did mattered. I'm going to do the dishes, and tomorrow there will be more dishes. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 describes it like this. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we had our, we had conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, just as others. You see, Sometimes because coming to Jesus feels so right, we forget our former estate. 
it's like I forget what it was like to be a single person. I really can't think or remember life without Brian. I have just been with him so much and so long, 38 and a half years. But sometimes that gets this familiarity where I can stop appreciating. And I have to remember that I I have been saved from, from condemnation, from the devil, from emptiness, from fear, from frustration, from helplessness, from hopelessness. I don't want the familiarity of walking with Jesus to make me forget how great my salvation is. But our salvation is so great because of the great cost. We could not save ourselves. The law could not save us. It only showed us the jeopardy we were in, the sin we had committed. Blood sacrifices could not save us. They, they could only cover our sins. But there were not enough animals in this world to atone for all our sins. And they only pointed to the need of a greater, pure, sufficient sacrifice. Our good works could not save us because even our best works are done with selfish motives. We were not good enough. Our works were not great enough nor generous enough. And our sins were greater more numerous than all are good. The cost was so expensive, it was blood. And not just any blood. The blood that would have to cover for our sins had to be pure, undefiled, and powerful. Our blood could not atone because it was tainted with sin. We're told in Leviticus 17:11, the life is in the blood. And we needed living blood, not that of a dead sacrifice, but living blood. The cost was humbling and eternally binding. It says in verse 11 of Hebrews 2, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one blood, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. It had to be human, and yet it had to be divine. Deity would have to join itself to humanity. And the cost was that the Son of God would have to become man forever. The incarnation tells us that God is forever man and forever God. Not God the Father, but God the Son is forever the Son of Man and the Son of God. He is both. He's not either or. He's not 50-50. He's not 75, 25. He is all God and he is all man. But let me say this. He is the only God man. There is no other. There will never be another God man. And there was not a God man before him. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the first God man. He is the only God man. And he will ever be the only God-man, the only mediator, the only one who could join the Father to humanity, the only one who will ever join the Father to lost humanity. It is God alone, the Son of God. He is forever related to humanity. Jesus is the only one. He alone is the bridge. He will never turn back to God because he never lost being God. 
He is all God and he is all man. But Jesus experienced the ultimate reduction. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 tells us, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross the cost was humiliating to the son of god the cost was the life of the son of god the cost was painful verse 9 of hebrews chapter 2 but we see jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death verse 10 for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings jesus endured the whole human experience he took the lowest place that we might be exalted to the highest place with him he was born into poverty a stable in bethlehem raised in nazareth to a working class family he had no permanent place to live according to his own word and testimony in matthew 8 20 he served the people healing feeding delivering and he said in luke 22 verse 27 i am among you as one who serves jesus knew our physical experience he knew what it was to hunger to thirst to be angry, to be frustrated, to be tired. And he wept. He knew what it was to feel sorrow. Jesus experienced emotional suffering, rejection, opposition. He was forsaken by his disciples, those closest to him, those who knew him best. He was denied. He was falsely accused. He was publicly humiliated, stripped, and denounced. He was mocked and ridiculed and condemned. Jesus experienced the physical suffering. He was bound, led, beaten, bullied, bruised. His beard was pulled out. He was flogged. He wore a crown of thorns. He received severe physical abuse from the Roman guards. He was paraded about. His hands and feet were pierced through with a stake. He was heaved up onto a rough wooden cross and he was left to die while men around him watched, gambled for his clothes, enjoyed his suffering. And those he loved wept and became disillusioned. Oh, it's so hard when somebody through your own tragedy says, I don't know if I can believe in God because I'm watching what you're going through. And you're like, I, I, I want to help you through this, but Jesus was on the cross. And all he could say is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus experienced the ultimate death. We, we have death as a transport, but he felt the separation of his spirit from his father. Matthew 27, 46, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was pure and good, felt the filth of all men's sins. He felt that which he hated, that which he loathed upon his person. He took the condemnation that we so richly deserve. He experienced the wrath of God against sin. Again, Hebrews tells us that he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Not just death, but the suffering of death. It's a death 
that we, because of our salvation, never need suffer, but he suffered it. Jesus became man in order to suffer and to die for men that he might save all mankind. So our salvation is so great because of the price our Savior paid. First Peter 1, 18 through 19 says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. But next, our salvation is so great because our Savior is so great. He is God's son. As we said, he is God. And in chapter one, just last week, we learned that he's the appointed heir of all things, the creator of the world, the brightness of God's glory, the express image of God's person. I want to go back just real quick to the creator of the worlds, not just the world, but the worlds, all the planets, all the stars. He's the express image of God's person. He's the upholder of all things by his word. He is the one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this is the one that said, no one takes my life from me, but I give it voluntarily for the sins of the world. This great Jesus, this son of God voluntarily procured our salvation He is the one who utterly pleased God, the one to whom God bore witness, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in verse four, we're told that God also bore witness to him with signs and wonders and various miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus did what he did, though he was God. He did what he did, the miracles through the power of God. God worked it in him and through him proving, showing, manifesting that Jesus was indeed the one God was well pleased with, the one that God took perfect delight in. In verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 2, it says, he is the one to whom God has placed the world to come in subjection to. That One day, as it says in Philippians chapter two, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Philippians and Ephesians both tell us that Jesus is given the highest name, a name above every other name. But Jesus is also the ultimate man. He is what every man was created to be. He is what every man should be, courageous, kind, compassionate, gracious, noble, moral, upright, caring, faithful, sympathetic. He is everything. You know, they used to have those dolls, Mr. Wonderful, and he would, you would press the button and would say, my dear, but you look so beautiful. You would press it again and it would say, yes, dear, I will ask for directions. But that was Mr. Wonderful. But Jesus is more than wonderful. He is our wonderful savior, counselor, king. In fact, the word captain of our salvation that the author uses in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter two can be translated champion or archegos. And it means the pioneer or the first, um, the one who goes before the victor, the front runner. He is our champion. He is our savior. He became weak as a man, lived as a man, took on the forces of the devil as a man, took on death 
and took on himself the wrath of God. And he did all this to save us from hell, damnation, sin, the devil, fear, meaninglessness. Our salvation is great because of what it has brought to us. Not only are we saved from wrath, destruction, the devil, sin. You might be saying, Cheryl, will you quit saying those things? But I think we need to be reminded over and over again what we've been saved from. But we are forever related to God through Jesus. We have become the daughters of God and the heirs of God because of our salvation. We now have a merciful high priest who understands us, who aids us and helps us. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And when it speaks of the seed of Abraham, it's talking about those who believe by faith and seek to obtain a righteous standing with God by believing his word. And again, in Hebrews chapter one, we're told that Jesus is the ultimate word of God. As it says in Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, God, who in various times and in various ways has spoken to us by the prophets, has now in these last days spoken to us by his son. Jesus is the word of God, the message of God. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, like humanity, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to pay the payment, to pay the cost, for that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You see, through Jesus, we not only have an in with God, but we have help and aid. Jesus himself understands us. But we also have exaltation. We are going to heaven. We are going to glory. This corruption will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. We have forgiveness of our sins. We have been cleansed. We have been purged. We have the assurance of heaven. We are saved. We are saved. And it's so great a salvation. The world, the devil, are always trying to dull our senses to the greatness of our salvation. Therefore, as believers, we have to give the more earnest heed. We have to give greater attention, make an investment in, make it a priority, the things that we have learned and received. The author of Hebrews says, if the law given by angels was binding, it still stands, and every transgression and disobedience received a corresponding judgment. There is no escape if we neglect this great salvation. There's no other salvation. There's no other way to heaven. There's no other way for our sins to be forgiven. There is no other way to have reconciliation with the Father. There is no other way to have the blessings of God to have the favor of God. It is only through this great salvation that Jesus has wrought for us. It is going to need to take heed. Remember, attention and action is going to take earnest heed, dedication, and sincerity. And we must put in effort the more 
the more earnest heed. We must put in effort. This will mean reminding ourselves and being reminded of how great our salvation is. That means we're going to hear it again. We need to pay attention when we're singing about it. We need to preach it to ourselves. We need to talk about it with others. We need to meditate on it. We need to fellowship in Bible study and spend time in God's word. We need to pray and use the benefits of the salvation. Do not neglect. It's time to give attention again. The more earnest heed and attention to this great salvation. So great a salvation cannot, should not, for any reason, be neglected. We are saved. And the cost was great. And the Savior is so great. And we are saved from such a horrid condemnation. And through it, we have access to God and the blessings of God. Such a great salvation should never, ever, ever be neglected. Amen? Amen. Go ahead. Let's stand. Stand with me. And let's just seek the Lord. Lord, we pray that you would touch our hearts afresh and anew with the glory of this great salvation that we have each received. Lord, in, in Lighten our hearts, elucidate our hearts, elate our hearts again with the glory that we have received so great a salvation. Lord, for those of us who have been neglecting for whatever reason, we ask you to make us attentive again, just to wash over us, to forgive us, to remove those things in our lives that have dulled us to the greatness of such a great salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.